Everybody doing okay? Good, good, good. I uh, hope everyone had a good spring break. Um, okay, so I got a fun story for you. It's, 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 uh, it's kind of funny. So the other day I went out to Smyrna and there's an old car that I was interested in. I saw on Craigslist and saw that it was in Smyrna. I'm like, I'm gonna go look at this old car. And so I drove my old car out there and <clears throat> was talking with this guy and we we're talking about maybe like trading cars and all this kind of stuff. And went out there and looked at this old car. And um, when I pulled up to his house, he came out, younger guy, and uh, he called me Mr. Trimble, which no one calls me that, you know. <laughs> and come to find out, he was a student of mine when I was at Smyrna High School, when I was a teacher there. And he walked out and I was like, Brian, you were, you know, you were one of the juniors when I was a teacher. And he's like, yeah, man. And he's got all these old cars now and he's an engineer, which is kind of cool. So he's very successful and he's doing really well with, his, with himself. And we just got to talking and, and uh, you know, like I, I got grease stains on my hands because I've been working on my car because I'm a man, right? And uh, driving my old car and he's got his old cars and we're talking old cars and we're revving up engines, you know, because we're men. And, and, uh, and so we get done doing all this <laughs> and we walk out of his garage and uh, a, a lady that comes to church, Miss Debbie, lives next door and I didn't know this. And she comes out and she's dressed like kind of like a princess and she goes, hey, Corey, bring Brian. We're having a tea party. And I was like, okay. And so I got Brian and we walked over there and we went inside and there was uh, three little girls, her daughter, uh, who's in her 20s, I'm guessing, she looks really young. And so they're all sitting there and they're all dressed like Disney princesses. They have tea, which was great, Kool-Aid, right? Kool-Aid and, and like uh, different kinds of cookies and desserts. And they're sitting at a big tea table. And so we sit down, because this is what you do when you're polite, right? And you sit down and we're just like drinking tea and eating cookies. And it was funny, because I was like totally cool with this. I got two little girls. Brian, on the other hand, who's not married and doesn't have kids, he's like awkwardly sitting there just like wondering how in the heck he found himself in this position. Uh, <laughs> but it was awesome. It was so much fun. And um, it was just great. Now, at that moment, I'm like, God, I have a really cool life. You know, like how cool is it that I get to do these things, right? So uh, it was a lot of fun. That has nothing to do with anything we're talking about today. I just... There's a window to what it looks like to, to be Corey Trimble. So uh, um, that's it. Okay, all right, let me get under the Bible, right? That's why you guys came today. Okay, so we've been working through the Gospel of John, boy, for quite a while now. Let me tell you something neat that's happening. Today we're going to do chapter 18. Next week we'll do chapter 19. Of course, the week after that we'll do chapter 20. That is going to be Resurrection Weekend, and chapter 20 is about the resurrection kind of cool, right, how all that worked out. Um, I'll let the cat out of the bag. I didn't even plan it like that. One, people were like, man, Corey, that's great planning. And I'm like, okay. Uh, but it happened to fall like that, right? So what we talked about last week, we were in chapter 17. And let me see if I can paint the picture here. Jesus has left the upper room. He's got 11 of his 12 disciples because one has gone off to betray him. They go into the night, right? It's dark outside. It's nighttime. It's getting late. They are on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where they are going to pray together until Jesus is arrested. He's taken off to be falsely accused, falsely tried, and then he's going to be crucified, okay? On his way to the garden with his 11 disciples, chapter 17 is a prayer that he's saying for his disciples and for us. We talked about that last week. Now, we see him going into the garden, and now we're going to see the climax of the story getting very, very close. And we're going to encounter, today's a little bit different, we're going to encounter four different men 
and we're gonna talk about how we identify with these four different men. There's actually five men we're gonna talk about, but there's four we're really gonna focus on. And what we're gonna come to the conclusion of today is that when anyone has an encounter with Jesus, one must decide who he is. There's no room for indecision. We can't just say, I don't know. We have to come to a conclusion about who Jesus is. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. I think you're really gonna like this chapter. It's a neat chapter. There's some neat history in this chapter. And we're gonna see some very interesting, fascinating characters in this chapter, okay? So let me pray. We'll dive into chapter 18 of the Gospel of John. That's the fourth book of the New Testament. You should have notes, handouts in front of you. It's on version. if you have the Bible app. Everything's right in front of you, okay? So let me pray. We'll dive into this and uh, see where the Lord takes us. Father, Lord, we love you. God, you're so gracious and you're so kind. We love you so much, Lord. God, I pray that you just open up our eyes today, open up our ears today. Help us, Lord, to understand your word to the best of our abilities. God, I pray, Lord, that we don't just hear it, but that we apply your word. Father, we pray for every single church in our community, God. We pray that you bless the pastors of those churches and the congregations. We pray that you bless the nonprofits in our community, God. We pray that you unify us and that you advance your kingdom and not ours, God. We love you, we thank you, and we lift you up in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me dive into chapter 18. I think you're gonna enjoy this. Here we go. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some temple police from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, who is it you're looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed them, was also standing with them. And when he told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, who is it you're looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they said. I told you that I am he. Jesus replied, so if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said to them, I have not lost one of those that you've given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. At that time, Jesus said to Peter, sheathe your sword. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? Okay, the first thing we see is this, is Jesus isn't afraid of anybody. Judas would have known where Jesus was going to take the 12 disciples because he took them there a lot and they would go there and pray. Listen, this is fascinating stuff. When Judas showed up to engage Jesus, he brought, it says, a company of men. A company of Roman soldiers was 200 soldiers. Not only did they bring 200 soldiers to arrest Jesus, they brought police from the temple, right? So there might've been 250 300 fully armored up, fully weaponized soldiers coming after this one man. This leads me to believe, one, that they were expecting some kind of fight, right? Maybe even a little bit more than just expecting some kind of a fight. 
maybe some of them believe there was a little bit more to this Jesus character than him just being a man. That's what I believe. So they engaged him with a small army, essentially, okay? Now, it says quickly, John writes that Jesus knew everything that was going to happen. So what we know from that is, is Jesus was in control. And Jesus walks out to meet them, and he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazarene. And when he replies, I am he, it says that the men fall back to the ground. They step back. Imagine kind of like if you get startled. They step back and they kind of stumble back on the ground. Now, some people believe this was something miraculous Jesus had done. What it probably more than likely is, is the Jewish men in this crowd, right? When he said, I am he, Jesus was alluding to the fact that he was God. And there was some fear struck in them with this kind of presence that they were sensing. The Roman soldiers had probably heard all kinds of tales about how this guy could heal people and raise the dead, and there was a lot of intimidation there. So what we see is this, this small mob, right, or small army that was a mob, they were more afraid of this one guy than Jesus was ever afraid of them. And they stumbled back, and he struck fear in them because of the authority that he had. This is very interesting to me. And so, Jesus says a second time, he says, who are you looking for, right? After they kind of get up and gain their composure, right? They're dusting off their armor real quick. Yeah, Jesus of Nazarene, that's who we're looking for. And after, he's, after he says the second time, I'm he, Jesus steps up in front of his men and he says, look, essentially your beef is with me, right? You're looking for me, let these men go. And what that does is it fulfills a scripture from John chapter six, when Jesus told God, or he affirms with God, he says, I'm not gonna lose any of the men that you've given me. Any of the men you've entrusted me with, I'm not gonna lose them. And he didn't, except for Judas, who was destined to leave, right? He was predestined to leave. So Jesus, what we see here, is Jesus is our savior. He stands guard over us. He takes the weight for our mistakes. In this situation, we see a very literal example of something big spiritually that's happening, and that's substitutionary atonement. That's a fancy way of saying that Jesus stands in our place, right? He protects us. He stands guard and watch over us. Okay, so Peter, right? Everyone knows who Peter is. Most people know who Peter is. Peter was a professional fisherman, not like you see on TV, like the bass guys, right? He fished for a living, right? That's what he did. And Peter is a lot like us in a lot of ways. He displayed a lot of courage. He displayed a lot of loyalty, but he was also extremely immature. So he happened to have a sword on him, right? He sees that this one guard is maybe making a move towards Jesus. He brings out his sword. He was probably trying to strike the neck of the soldier, but because he was a fisherman, not a swordsman, he missed, cut off the right ear, right? This guy falls to the ground, and John doesn't record the miracle that takes place, but Luke does. Jesus went, picked up the ear, put it back on this slave, a soldier named Malchus, and then he turns and looks at Peter and rebukes Peter for his violence. Now, why is this so important? This individual Malchus is, is a very minor character in the Bible. We know virtually nothing about this guy except for this little bitty piece in the Gospels. But what's interesting about Malchus is the last recorded miracle that Jesus ever does before he goes to the cross is he heals an enemy. Isn't that fascinating? And so Jesus turns around, he rebukes Peter. He says, put your sword away. 
He rebukes him for the violence. He shows grace and love to this enemy by restoring his ear. And there are a million lessons we could teach just on this little passage about what Christ did for this man who was coming to take him to his death. One of the biggest lessons that we see from this little part that I read, though, is this. A very famous phrase that came from Jesus' mouth that we still use a lot today is we say that if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Jesus said that. This is a clear reminder that our, or that our actions hold consequences. And if we live in a way that is contrary to Jesus Christ, we cannot blame God for the outcome. There are so many people that come to me and they're just like, I don't know why God would allow my finances to be like this. And I'm like, whoa, hold on a second. God didn't make you buy the new Corvette, right? Nothing wrong with a Corvette if you have one. But I'm saying, God didn't make you buy a house that you can't afford. I can't believe God is letting this happen to my marriage. Wait a second. God didn't make you cheat on your wife. You did that, right? So if we live in ways contrary to the Bible, we cannot blame God for the consequences and outcome that we have to deal with, right? Everyone's on the same page there, right? Okay, great. Man, the Saturday services at the five, it is so quiet. And it's like creepy, right? It like freaks me out. Like I'll say something and everyone's just doing this. Okay, I'm gonna do something different here. I'm gonna read verses 12 through 18. I'm gonna skip a couple of verses and read 25 through 27. Okay, so I'm gonna skip a part here in a minute. Then the company of soldiers, the commander, and the Jewish temple police arrested Jesus and tied him up. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was advantageous that one man should die for the people. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was following Jesus as was another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter remained standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, the one who knew the high priest, went out, spoke to the girl who was the doorkeeper, and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, you aren't one of his, his disciples too, are you? I am not he said. Now the slaves and the temple police had made a fire because it was cold, and they were standing there warming themselves, and Peter was standing with them warming himself. Now Simon Peter was warming himself. They said to him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the high priest's slaves, a relative of the man whose who's ear Peter had cut off, Peter's probably like, I hope she doesn't know who I am, right? Said, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed, okay? So, the soldiers in the garden didn't take Jesus to the high priest yet. They took him to the high priest's father-in-law, a guy named Honest, but we'll talk about him more here in a second, okay? So what was going on is this. They've arrested Jesus. They're taking them to the high priest and the high priest's father-in-law. Peter is following at a distance, but he's trying to stay close enough. He's maybe ducking behind alleys. He's moving down different side streets, trying to follow this mob, okay? Not only Peter, but John was following 
with him. And John records all this later. And the reason why he records this so closely is John wanted to paint the picture of the fact that Peter thought he could fix it somehow. He had this false sense of assurance that he's going to somehow make it right, and that's going to eventually bite him in the butt. We're going to see that here in a second. So the way that they got into the temple courtyard is John actually knew the high priest's family. I won't get into this part of history, but John actually had members of his family that were very connected with the government, very connected with the religious order, so he had connections. So John slips into the the, the temple courtyard. Peter, who does not have the connections, can't get in yet, but John talks to some people. He goes to the girl that's kind of the doorkeeper and says, hey, my buddy Peter's out here, let him in. Probably didn't use his name, right? But my buddy's out there, let him in. And she lets him in. And as she lets Peter in, she goes, hey, you look familiar. Aren't you one of Jesus's followers too? And Peter says, oh, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't know that guy, right? I don't know him. And at that point, we see that the night gets a little bit darker. Not only a follower of Jesus, but the follower of Jesus, Peter, rejects Christ. Not only does he reject Christ, he goes over and there's a fire that's made out of charcoal, the Bible says, right? This fire is burning. He goes over and he starts warming himself by the enemy's fire. And he's sitting there. And as Peter finds himself by a fire surrounded by people that oppose Jesus, he buckles under the pressure two more times and says that he does not follow Jesus Christ. Now, listen. We're going to be honest with each other. As followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be extremely careful about the environments that we put ourselves in, especially if we're immature in our faith. That doesn't mean if you're mature in your faith, you can like go hang out at strip clubs, right? That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm saying that as Christians, we need to be careful about the people we surround ourselves and the environment we surround ourselves in, because even though we think we're strong in our faith sometimes, If we are warming ourselves by the enemy's fire, we create ourselves to to be vulnerable and we may backtrack on our convictions if we're not careful, right? That's what we need to be careful of. So again, Peter reminds us, I'll, I'll just use me, Peter reminds me of me, that I need to be careful to remain humble and I need to be careful to remain teachable because my immaturity can get me into serious trouble. If you want to think of Peter's life, I found this really interesting when I was studying. There was one commentary that said that Peter's life can be summed up in three phrases, at the fire, under fire, or on fire. (laughs) This is how you can summarize Peter's life. And this is actually the path of many Christians, right? We're either in a place we don't need to be, we're under pressure, or we're on fire for God. So we must make sure that we are insulated so much with the Holy Spirit that when life turns the heat up on us, that we are able to withstand it, okay? So as he's warming his hands, right? He's warming his hands. Two more people say, hey man, you look familiar. And he says, look at the exclamation points in that. He says, no, I'm not with him. Very emphatic about it, right? Someone else says, hey, you look like this guy that I saw with Jesus. No, that's not me. Very, very emphatic. And right after the third time he does it, imagine this. Imagine what Peter felt like right after he denied Jesus the third time. In the distance, he hears a rooster crow. And Jesus had predicted that he would do that. I bet his, I bet his skin crawled when he heard this rooster in the distance crow. I tried to make a rooster noise at the seven o'clock last night. I told him I'm not going to do that again. So anyways... <laughs> 
If you go back and study Jewish folklore, something really interesting about Peter, and this is just Jewish folklore, right? I don't know if it's fact or not, but it's a story that people would tell. The story that the Jews would tell is when Peter would go into different areas, especially Jewish areas, that people would mock Peter by making rooster crows. Here's the thing we learned from that, guys. Whenever you are a devoted Christian, whenever you are a leader trying to advance the kingdom of God, people will be quick to bring your past up against you. They'll be quick to bring it up, but we must know that Jesus Christ is a righteous judge, and if we are living in the truth, the truth always bubbles up to the surface. It always wins, okay? All right, another interesting character, right? A guy named Annas. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus said, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogue and in the temple complex where all the Jews congregate, and I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I've told them. Look, they know what I've said. When he said these things, one of the temple police standing by slapped Jesus saying, is this the way you answer the high priest? If I have spoken wrongly, Jesus answered, give evidence about the wrong. But if I've spoken rightly, why do you hit me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Annas is an interesting character. While Peter was sitting here at the fire, right, Jesus was taken to the real power behind the priestly throne. Now, on paper, the most powerful man in Jewish culture was Caiaphas. But the guy who pulled Caiaphas' strings was his father-in-law, a guy named Annas, who was kind of like the one that ran all the politics of Jerusalem. Not only did he run the politics of Jerusalem, look at this, and look at how eerily close this is to some churches today. Not only did he control the pastor and do these things with his his son-in-law, they also owned a chain of businesses, bazaars, right? These chain of businesses where they sold animals for sacrifices up to 20 times more than what they were worth. So there was this weird blending of business, church, and family, which is always very, very unhealthy. So Annas was the high priest from 6 to 15 AD, so nine years, right? He showed ridiculous nepotism, favoritism towards his family. All four of his sons were high priests at one time, and now his son-in-law was the high priest. And the big threat that Jesus had to Annas and Caiaphas is Jesus was going to upset the apple cart of religion, and that religion made this family a lot of money. And they didn't want Jesus to come in and upset that. So what we see is this, guys. Blending business, I'm talking like, I know there's a business aspect to church, right? You have to have accounts payable, accounts, I know all that stuff, right? Especially when you have lots of money coming in, you have to be careful about that. But whenever churches become corporations and whenever nepotism and family favoritism gets into the mix, it has always been bad for the church. It's always been bad for the church. Some of you have been hurt by churches who have done this kind of thing, right? Family stuff, business stuff, and that stuff needs to be separate from this. So, Honest pulls Jesus up, right? And he starts to ask him, he says, what are you teaching? What are you saying? What are you doing? And Jesus says, 
I've always made my things clear. I've always taught out in public. I've always been very direct. I've always been very transparent. Jesus says, I haven't used secret language or cryptic language. Here's the thing, guys. If you want to know like kind of the earmark of a cult, whenever there is some kind of secret hidden knowledge, right? You have to pay $19.95 to get, right? Whenever there's a secret thing that only a small group of people know, that you have to work your way up to the you know, secret club in this group, that's a cult. And the exact opposite of that is Christianity. Jesus says, everything's out in the open. Everything you need to know is here. Everything is black and white. It's very, very simple. And Jesus said, you don't even have to ask me. Ask the people that listen to me. I've told them everything. They know everything. Ask them. And when he said this, one of the temple police hit him, slapped him, right? And Jesus' response is nothing like what most of our responses would be. Our initial response would be to hit back, right? Jesus looked at the man that slapped him, and he essentially says, if I've done something wrong, okay, but if I haven't done anything wrong, why'd you hit me? And what this brings up is this. There is a unique, it's like nothing else in the world, there is a unique and irrational hatred towards the teachings of Jesus. There is this unique and irrational hatred towards the Bible. And what we must do is you and I, if we are Christians in here, we must live at such a level to where if we are struck, we can look at them and say, did I do something to offend you? If I did, tell me, but I don't think I did. We must live above reproach. But listen, we must also know that some people will hate you simply because you're a Christian. Some people will hate you simply because you think this word is the infallible word of God, and we must accept that, okay? Last part. Now, I am a huge Roman history buff. I love Roman history. I'm not a scholar in it, but I'm really fascinated by it. So this character is probably the one I find the most interesting in this chapter, okay? Let me tell you a little bit about Pilate. So then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning, and they did not enter the headquarters themselves Otherwise, they would be defiled and unable to eat at the Passover. Then Pilate came out to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? They answered, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. So Pilate told them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. It's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, signifying what kind of death he was going to die. Then Pilate went back to the headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own, or have others told you about me? Let me pause there for a second. Many people believe that Pilate's wife believed in Jesus Christ thought that he was the Savior, and she would have dreams and visions about Jesus. So when Jesus looked at Pilate and he said, has anyone else told you about me? He knew that Pilate's wife was being stirred in her heart. Is that not interesting? Let me keep reading. Pilate says, I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied, your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. As it is, my kingdom does not have origin here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king. I was born for this, and I've come into this world for this, 
to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? Pilate said. After he said this, he went out to the Jews again and he told them, I find no grounds for charging him. You have a custom to release one prisoner to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a revolutionary. Now this is, I I hope you guys are impressed with this. There's some neat information in this. Okay, the first thing is this. It was early in the morning, about seven to eight o'clock in the morning. The first thing Pilate did not want to deal with on this day was the Jews. Pilate absolutely hated the Jews. This would have been, in his eyes, the worst assignment Caesar could have given him, was to send him to Jerusalem. He did not want to be there. He didn't want to meddle in Jewish affairs. He wanted nothing to do with the Jews. In fact, Pilate had a reputation of being so violent and cold-blooded to the Jews that eventually Caesar said, dude, we got to get you out of Jerusalem, right? We got to pull you back to Rome. And that's eventually what happened historically. So what were the charges brought against Jesus? What What was brought against him? There was seven charges brought against Jesus. One is they thought that he threatened to destroy the temple because he said he was going to destroy the temple, but he was talking about his body, not the literal temple. They said that he does evil. They thought he was full of the devil. He perverts the nations. He's anti-taxes. Go Jesus, right? He's revolutionary. He claims to be king, and he claims to be God. That's why they wanted to kill Jesus, these seven charges, okay? Now, all of this was happening at a very interesting time. They were about to go into the Passover festival, into the Passover feast. And if you've never heard of that before, Passover is from the book of Exodus. I almost said Exodus. I almost made up my own book of the Bible there. From the book of Exodus, the Passover feast celebrated the fact that when the angel of death flew over in Egypt, that if they killed a sacrificial lamb and put the blood of the lamb on their house, that death would pass them by. Look at what's happening here. The ultimate sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, was about to die for the sins of all of humanity so that we would escape eternal death and have eternal life. That's what was about to take place. Is this a coincidence? Of course not. That's not how Jesus works. Everything he does, he does on purpose, and he's setting this up beautifully, okay? So what's happening is this. The Jews want Jesus gone, but they don't want to kill him, right? They don't want to do the dirty work. So they hand him over to the the Romans, to Pilate. Pilate also doesn't want to do the dirty work, so he tries to pass the buck back to the Jews. Now, the reason why it ended up in the Romans' hands is there was a prophecy that Jesus gave to where he said he was going to be lifted up, which means he's going to be crucified. If the Jews were the one to kill him, they would have stoned him to death, and that prophecy wouldn't have come true. But because Jesus said it, it happened the way that he wanted it to happen. And what we learn from that is this, Jesus's words always come to fruition. They're always true, right? They're always certain. Also that when we are evil and we are doing things evil, we are always looking out for number one, right? We want things for us, but we don't want to get our hands dirty. We don't want the responsibility of those things. So by the time Jesus came to Pilate, he probably looked pretty rough. He'd probably been beaten up. His jaw was probably broken. His eyes were probably swollen. I think the movie, The Passion of the Christ, does a really 
amazing job of portraying this interaction between Pilate and Jesus Christ. But by the time he got there, he probably looked pretty rough. And here's what's interesting. This is why I find Pilate so fascinating. Pilate hated the Jews. He looked at them like dogs. He didn't even think they were worth having around. But there was something about Jesus that caused this beat up, bloody man, right, Jesus, that caused Pilate to want to have a conversation with him. And he asks him, and I believe he's being genuine. He says, are you the king? What have you done? How have you caused such a stir with all these people? Why are so many people upset at you? And you could tell that there was something in Pilate that was unsettled. Something was wrong, right? And so what Jesus says in part of this conversation is I love how other translations say it. He say that who, Jesus says, whoever hears my words hears the truth. And that's why Jesus ultimately came. Jesus ultimately came to define what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong. And Pilate's response to this is enormous. He says, what is truth? Essentially what Pilate is saying, he's saying the same thing that our culture says now. Pilate is saying truth is what we make it. Truth is relative. Truth is different for every single person. And when he says that, he is verbalizing, he is articulating what our culture thinks right now. And quite frankly, what culture has thought ever since the beginning of creation when we fell. We have bought into the lie that we can define truth. You guys remember, and I'm not trying to be a jerk, you guys remember when the overtly Caucasian woman came out and said she was the, uh, she's African-American and she got elected head of the NAACP in whatever city it was? You guys remember when that happened? I remember reading that story and I laughed out loud, not, not at this woman, not even at the situation. But what had happened is we've created a culture that tells people that you can be whatever you want to be regardless of the truth. And so this white woman puts on the persona of someone who, if you study African-American culture, people who've gone through tremendous oppression, slavery, even just in the last 60 years, great racial oppression, and she puts on this persona. And I'm a white guy, and I found that offensive, right? And so I'm reading this, and I laughed out loud because culture had painted itself into a corner. We got caught in our own trap wait a second, if I accept this woman's thoughts on herself, I become racially insensitive. But if I don't accept it, I become insensitive to the fact that truth is relative, right? And so we've painted this crazy thing, this scenario. And Jesus came to say, truth doesn't move because you want it to move. Truth is set in stone. Truth is absolute. It is clear. But as a culture, we don't believe that. So Pilate has this conversation with Jesus, right? He goes back to the Jewish people. There's this mob outside of his door, right? And he says, I don't see anything wrong with this guy. And in effect, he said, this guy's innocent. So what he thought he would do is he thought in his head, well, I got a plan, right? I can get this guy off the hook. I can get myself off the hook. I got it, right? So he goes in front of all these people right before the Passover and he says, hey, you guys have this cultural thing that you guys do where every year at Passover, you let a prisoner go. You show grace on a prisoner. Now he said, look, we can either let Jesus go, right? King of the Jews, and maybe he was taking a jab at him there, right? We can either let Jesus go or we'll let go of this prisoner, Barabbas. Now it says that he was a revolutionary. That translates into our day and age, he was a terrorist. This is the guy that would have blown up a government building. This was a radical, right? He was way out there. And so to, to Pilate, he's like, 
Of course they're going to let Jesus go. They don't want this guy running around, right? And so here's what's interesting. Pilate just didn't want to deal with the headache of defending Jesus. So he came up with this scenario, right? I'll get off the hook. He'll get off the hook. Everything's going to be cool. We'll just kind of diffuse the situation. He didn't want to go through the trouble. Now, probably the most fascinating thing that I discovered in the last couple of weeks about this story that I never knew before, Barabbas' name literally means son of the father. And I put uppercase F, it's a lowercase F. Son of the father, which Barabbas' name simply meant that he was a human, that he was literally the offspring of his dad. That's what his name means. Now, on the other side, you have the son of the father, capital S, capital F. He is the son of God. If you want to know the whole story of Christianity, when you have Barabbas on one side, the son of the father, Jesus Christ on the other side, the son of the father, when it should have been humanity that was punished, right, and imprisoned and taken care of, Jesus was the one that was punished and killed when we were let go. All of us, humanity, are Barabbas. Every single person in this room has been rebellious to God. We have deserved death, but because Jesus loves us, he went and received the punishment for the son of the father because he's the son of the father. Is that not fascinating? He stepped into our place, humanity and divinity, and divinity came and stepped in front and saved us. So here's the thing. We can't... We're not going to go over Barabbas because, quite frankly, all of us are Barabbas. But there's some interesting characters that we came up with in this chapter. One, Malchus, right? Malchus was just doing his job. He was a, a police officer. He was doing his thing. He showed up to arrest Jesus, and all of a sudden, he was struck by the power of God. Imagine this guy, right? Your ear gets cut off. You're looking at it. Jesus walks up, pops it back on, says, Peter, you know, puts it back on. <laughs> it was probably more dramatic than that, Right? But imagine having your ear cut off. All of a sudden, it's put back on and you can hear again on that side, right? And now this guy, Malchus, is left to make a decision. Who is this? Who is this? We also have Peter. <laughs> Peter, who is very vocally a follower of Jesus, right? I'm a follower of Jesus. This is the guy, the Catholics call him the first pope. This is a very a person of monumental importance. This is the first leader of the apostolic church in the book of Acts. Peter was a big deal, right? And he denied Jesus three times and found comfort in the enemy's fire. That's interesting, right? We also have Annas, who played favorites with his family and falsely accused Jesus of things he didn't do. And then we have Pilate who was confused, and he didn't want the hassles of knowing Jesus. He didn't think Jesus was a bad guy, but Jesus was going to inconvenience Pilate, and he didn't want to deal with that. Now, here's the thing. If we are honest and we look at those four individuals, we can see ourselves, I dare say, in all four of them. We have been like those men on some level. We can look at these guys. I can, I can honestly say I've done all four of those things. I remember when I was, was miraculously struck by God. I remember the times I've denied Jesus and walked away and found comfort in other things. I remember being confused and not wanting to hassle with all of this. I've been all four of those men. Here's the thing, though. 
When we have an encounter with Jesus, Jesus leaves no room for indecision. We must decide who is this. We must come to a conclusion in our hearts, who is this person? And he said, Jesus said, that we are either for him or against him. There was no middle option. Ah, he's a really great guy. No, he's either got to be God or he's just a crazy man, right? He's got to be one or the other. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said he's either Lord, a liar, or a lunatic. There's no other options. That's all we have, right? So we must choose our allegiance to him because Jesus also said a divided house cannot stand. Jesus said no person can serve two masters. He will either love one or hate the other or she will cling to one and let go of the other, right? So here's what I came to say to you guys. And listen, this is not a judgment thing. This is not me coming down on you. I've had to come to this crossroads a thousand times in my faith. Some of us need to get off the fence. Jesus has no desire for anyone to hang out on the fence. And what I mean by the fence is this, and I'm not trying to be mean to any of you. I swear I'm not. But I think we've bought into this lie that we think we can kind of put our faith over here certain days a week, certain times. When life's bad, I'll go back and grab this thing off the shelf and hold on to it, right? And then we live however we want the other part of the week. Here's the thing about Jesus, though. He's not just looking at you on Sunday. He sees you on Tuesday. And he sees you on Friday night. And he sees you at three o'clock in the morning with your laptop open. He sees us all the time. Nothing is hidden from God. Jesus actually said, what is spoken in the alleyways will be shouted from rooftops. He knows. He knows. Joshua, one of the most interesting characters in the Old Testament, Joshua said, listen, if you want to follow the gods of the Amorites, if you want to follow the gods of all these other places, if you want to follow the gods of sex and drugs and culture and music or sports or whatever God you want to follow, Joshua said, you go follow that God. But he said, for me, for my wife, for my kids, we follow God. You had to draw a line in the sand. Do you know why it's important for some of you to choose today who you're going to follow and if you're going to follow them 100%? Here's why it's important. Because your marriage is on the line. Your kids are on the line. Your friendships are on the line. Your contentment is on the line. The city is on the line. The nation is on the line. The world is on the line. Why must we decide? Because whatever master we serve, we have to serve 100%. God doesn't want 95% of you. God says, give me everything. Give me everything. And some of us need to choose. We either need to be in this or we need to go serve whatever God that we want to serve. Now, I want to end on a positive note. Let me tell you this, guys. My job is not to condemn you or make you feel bad. My job is to bring you the Word. And all throughout the Word, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, when we have done something wrong, when we have been rebellious, when we've been Barabbas or Pilate or Annas, whenever we've been Peter or Malchus, it is as easy as we go to God and because he died on the cross and poured out his spirit, we have direct access to the Father. We don't have to go kill a lamb. We don't have to do any of that. Today, we can simply say, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. And if we will confess our sins ask him to forgive us, and if we will take the steps to walk the direction he wants us to walk. It says in the Old Testament that he sets our sins as far as the east is from the west. It says in the Old Testament that he puts our sins into the deep sea, never to be seen again. 
That's as easy as it is. We repent and we walk the direction God wants us to go. And we can do that right now. Now I'm gonna pray. There'll be people up here on the right and left. If you, if you don't know how to pray, let them pray with you. Let them walk with you in prayer. There'll be elders of our church, men and women on both sides. There's communion all the way around. The only prerequisite for taking that communion is you have to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. But I'm gonna pray for you guys and we'll uh, go. It's supposed to be a beautiful day today. We'll go out and enjoy the beautiful weather, okay? Lord Jesus, God, I love you. Father, I thank you. I praise you. God, I pray right now that you would shine a light on all of our hearts. If there is any sin within us, Jesus, any sin, if there's any anger, if there's any hatred, if there's any racism, if there's any greed or lust, or if there's any hard feelings, whatever there is, God, expose that to us. Lord, let us confess those things and let us ask for forgiveness, God. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your son. We thank you, God, that, that, that Christ died on the cross for us. We thank you, Lord, for his blood that was shed and his body that was given for us, that we can partake in this communion and that we can talk to you. And God, that you will forgive us and you will build a relationship with us. Lord, we love you and we lift you up. And it's in your name we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys to death. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you.